I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. For many, childbirth can be a joyous experience. Families gather to greet their newest member. They gleefully count all the fingers and toes and pray that the baby and mother are healthy and safe. That is the expectation. But here in Tennessee, we have some of the highest infant and maternal mortality rates in the country. And black women are at higher risk to die from childbirth than Hispanic or white women. Advocates say a lack of prenatal care is one of the reasons for this disturbing gap. So many black women are seeking alternative care. Later this hour, we'll talk with doulas, midwives, and physicians about how these forms of care can contribute to the outcome for black women and how that can be changed for the better. But first, every year, dozens of bills related to guns are introduced in Tennessee's legislature. Conservative lawmakers don't have an appetite to restrict firearms, and Democratic lawmakers don't have the numbers to push for changes. So as the years have gone by, gun laws have loosened. It's become easier to have guns and easier to carry them in different settings. As this new legislative session is gearing up, WPLN's criminal justice reporter Paige Flager has been taking a look at what bills gun control advocates are keeping a lookout for. And she joins us now. Hey, Paige, how's it going? Hey, good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So where should we start? Yeah, so I think it would be good to start with um, the conversation that is ever evolving around arming teachers. So Republican Representative Jay Reedy recently filed a House bill that would allow local directors of schools to essentially deputize certain employees like teachers or other personnel Hmm. to carry a concealed handgun on school grounds. Hmm. So right now, as it stands, that power is only granted to school districts that are considered distressed rural counties. Um, So they couldn't otherwise afford something like a school resource officer or a security guard. Um, And it's very unclear, I should say, which districts, uh, if any, have actually utilized the law as it stands. Our education reporter, Alexis Marshall, is actually looking into that right now. Mm -hmm. Um, The bill does not have a Senate sponsor uh, and could not become a law without one. And gun control groups like Moms Demand Action Tennessee are hoping that it won't get a Senate sponsor or if it does, they plan to oppose it. Now, are there other anticipated bills that gun control advocates plan to oppose? Yeah. So last year, you might remember Republican Representative Chris Todd introduced a bill to lower the carrying age from 21 years old to 18 years old. Uh, That bill passed in the House, but it did not pass in the Senate. Um, In order for a similar policy to get resurrected, it would have to be reintroduced. Uh, And if it were, Linda McFadden Ketchum of Moms Demand Action Tennessee says that they would oppose it. They don't need to be um, carrying openly or concealed at that age because they are in the group of of folks who do most of the shooting. For example, in six of the nine deadliest mass shootings since 2018, the shooters were 21 years or younger. Mm. Okay, so it sounds like we're anticipating the the legislature to try to roll back restrictions, despite the fact that Tennessee has one of the highest rates of gun homicide deaths in the United States. Yeah. 
All right, so have any bills been introduced to try and help and curb that violence? Yeah, so there's actually an interesting bill that stuck out to me um, that was introduced by Democratic Senator London Lamar of Memphis. Uh, and she introduced a bill that would require the Department of Health to start tracking public health impacts of gun violence in communities. Um, the goal basically would be to identify and track areas that are most impacted by gun violence and then direct some resources towards local hospitals and youth in those places to work on things like violence prevention or violence interruption. Uh, some local municipalities are actually already looking towards violence interruption models. We've been talking about that a lot here in Nashville. Um, they've set aside more than $1.5 million for the first city-funded violence interruption pilot, and it looks like that money will likely go to the group's Gideon's Army, who's already been doing violence interruption in North Nashville, mm -hmm. and Why We Can't Wait, which is based on the South Side. And rumor has it that one of your favorite topics might make it to the table this session. Something, That's right. Something to address guns in cars, right? Yeah, let me just push my glasses up the bridge of my nose. Okay. I'm a big nerd about guns in cars. So a really wild number of guns get stolen from cars every year in Tennessee and in Nashville specifically. This all stems back to this 2013 law that passed that allowed gun owners to treat their cars basically like an extension of their house when it comes to carrying. And since then, the number of firearms stolen from cars here in Nashville has just ballooned. Mm. It Last year, it neared 1,400 guns stolen from cars. That set a very unfortunate record. Um, and Linda McFadden Ketchum from Moms Demand Action Tennessee says that the group plans to either introduce their own bill to address this or to support someone else's. We do want to see a law passed that would require secure storage in cars because so many guns are being stolen, especially in the cities. And road murder, which is what we call road rage, are such big problems now. And, you know, I gave you that 1,400 number yeah. from here in Nashville, but Nashville's actually not alone when it comes to having a problem with guns stolen from cars. Um, according to some FBI data from 2020, it shows that the top 20 cities where guns are stolen from cars in the country, four out of the top 15 or so are in Tennessee, including number one and number two, Memphis and Chattanooga. So we're up there. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, we know the climate of the legislature here in Tennessee. It's conservative and incredibly hard to get gun restrictions passed. Is there anything on advocates' wish lists that would probably that probably won't make it? Yeah. So gun control advocates in Tennessee have long called for something called an extreme risk protection order bill. It's more commonly known as a red flag law. These laws allow families or law enforcement to request that someone's access to firearms be restricted temporarily if that person is at risk of harming themselves or potentially other people. Advocates say it would help prevent things like mass shootings, which, of course, have been in the news this week. Um, it would also help with domestic violence deaths. Tennessee has one of the highest rates of women killed by men in the country. Often those crimes are committed with guns. And it could also cut back on gun suicides. So more than half of all suicides here in Tennessee are completed with a gun. And 58% of gun deaths in Tennessee are actually suicides. While Moms Demand Action Tennessee and other gun con control groups want to see a red flag law introduced, they still can't find a Republican lawmaker who would be willing to sponsor one. Mm. Paige Flager is the criminal justice reporter for WPLN. Paige, as always. 
Thanks for breaking this down, and thank you for your reporting. Of course. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll examine some of the problems black women face in childbirth and some of the gaps in prenatal care. Are you black and pregnant? What concerns do you have about childbirth? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. In April of last year, the Tennessee Department of Health released a report showing that from 2017 to 2020, more than 100 women in the state died from pregnancy-related causes. And during that time, black women died at nearly three times the rate of white women. That is unsettling data. The reasons are profound and widespread. To learn more about why this is happening in our state, I'd like to introduce my next guests. Stephanie Devan Johnson is a midwife and associate professor at Vanderbilt University School of Nursing. Stephanie, thank you for being here and welcome to thank This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. And Tia Freeman is a sex educator who works with the Beyond Row Collective and is a former guest of the show. Tia, welcome back. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you both for being here. Now, Tia, you had a unique birth experience with your son. Can you briefly describe that to us? <laughs> um, yes. So um, I was flying overseas and I was pregnant at the time. Um, I don't recommend flying while pregnant, especially that far along. Um, but I was young and poor and not trying to get, there was no refund for my ticket. So mm -hmm. I flew anyway. Um, and then about an hour or two before the plane landed, I was experiencing some stomach problems and at first I chalked it up to food poisoning, but once I landed in Istanbul, Turkey, I realized that it wasn't food poisoning and I was going into labor. Um, it happened so fast that I really didn't have time to reach out to anyone. The people at my hotel didn't speak English at the time and mm. I didn't know the um, like country code for 911 in a foreign country. Um, so I got on YouTube and I looked up how to deliver a baby and I just kind of followed the steps <laughs> of the YouTube huh. video. And then I found a WikiHow article for um, cutting the umbilical cord and passing the placenta and everything. Um, so, yeah, that was my birth story. Wow. Uh, wow. Just a little different. So you most used people's. WikiHow and the University of YouTube to give yes. birth to your son. Yeah. My mom calls me the like epitome of a millennial. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Now, are you, were you worried at all during that process? Um, during the process, no, just because, um, like I've explained this before, but like, I felt like there were two me's at the time where there was one who was just so focused on the step-by-step, -step, right? Like I didn't really have time to be afraid or consumed with panic, right? That wasn't going to help the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was just kind of following whatever the direction said to follow to the T and I was so tunnel visioned in that moment. But, um, there was a part of me obviously that was terrified, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm alone in a foreign country with no family support, no medical support, right? I'm doing this by myself and it's, and I'm a first time mom. So this is just me and a whole new experience. Um, and it wasn't until after the fact that the ramifications of everything that could have been kind of hit me. Like, mm -hmm. I was very grateful for how perfectly everything went. And once I got to the doctors, they were in awe by, like, how well I guess I handled myself um, and how well everything turned out. But, yeah, I mean, 
birthing can be a traumatic experience, mm-hmm. right? And there can be complications for people, especially when you don't have that support system. So it wasn't until later that I kind of had to sit with all the things that could have been, you know. When you did get medical experience mm-hmm. after you gave birth to your son, mm-hmm. what was that like when you got medical attention? Um, so I, like I said, this is my first child and my only child. So I don't, I'm not super familiar personally with the U.S. medical um, experience with birthing outside of like friends and families. But everything was great in Istanbul. Um, I paid out of pocket because my insurance didn't cover obviously international hospital debts. Um, but I think I paid less than two grand, maybe even less than like are close to one grand for the entirety of the experience. Um, I've had friends who show me their bills and it's like six hundred dollars for skin to skin contact. And I was like, wow. not I got to pay to touch my own baby. Right. Like. Wow. Um, yeah. And so but everything I mean, the doctors there were always willing to work with me. They were always listening and advocating on my behalf. There were certain times that doctors even asked like, hey, you need to have this because we had to fly back. So there was an added Um, level of medical safety that they needed to prepare my very newborn child for. Um, And so they would talk with other doctors and be like, hey, do you think you can reduce the cost of this or can you waive the fee for this because she needs it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, And so I just had the best medical staff and the medical team. And I still talk to them to this day on WhatsApp. Like, I'm like, hey, he's doing fine. (laughs) He's playing soccer now, right? Um, And that's a very different experience than what a lot of people have. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, when you talk to the people you know who here who've mm-hmm. had the birthing experience in the United States and you compare it to what you went through mm-hmm. really what goes through your mind um so on the collective with me there's another woman who um, had birth complications or had complications from her second child and as a result she ended up having to have a hysterectomy um and the her entire experience and the way she came into reproductive justice is from that level of trauma of not being listened to, not being heard. Um, she's a black woman from Memphis. Um, and what that feels like to feel helpless, right, to feel ignored and devalued by a system that says it's here to protect you and care for you. Um you know, every woman of my maternal side of the family has had a hysterectomy. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know one who hasn't. And so what that's like for me talking to my OBGYNs about like, hey, I want to make sure that I'm staying on top of this. So I'm doing whatever is necessary. So I think most people have a like reproductive health story. Um And whether that's good or bad, for a lot of people, they have negative experiences with the medical system. And for black women, I find that's even more true, which is even more heartbreaking, you know, because just by nature of your skin color, you're you're having disproportionate care. And it's not the race. That's the problem. It's racism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'd like to take a look at the general pregnancy outcomes in our state. As I mentioned, our the state reported that between 2017 and 2020, 113 Tennessee women died during pregnancy or within a year of pregnancy from causes related to or aggravated by pregnancy. Stephanie, can you break that down a little bit? What do those numbers mean? Those numbers mean that black women disproportionately than similarly positioned white women or Hispanic women during labor or within a year after their delivery in some way, shape or form, um, had a catastrophic event that caused their death. So whether that was they went and consulted their physician or midwife and had signs and symptoms of shortness of breath or um, something that leads to a complication and their 
the right steps weren't taken as mm-hmm. far as diagnostic tests or blood work or anything were not taken to highlight or to point a finger at, no, shortness of breath might be a cardiomyopathy, your heart might be enlarged or something like that. So their signs and symptoms potentially were not listened to, mm-hmm. which is documented in the literature that a lot of black women, women of color, um, signs and symptoms and complaints of certain things fall on deaf ears and the right things are not done by their healthcare provider, potentially by conscious or unconscious biases against black women. How concerning is that to you? Very. As a black woman, as a black nurse midwife, as a black mother, as a black daughter and a black friend. Um, And so that's why it's been my passion to advocate and to, I teach at Vanderbilt in the midwifery program to educate the um, new generation of healthcare providers to listen to black women and women of color. You know, I really want to understand why we're here. You know, there've been medical advancements that are supposed to make childbirth easier, but these numbers persist. Stephanie, you're one of the reasons, What tell me, what are some of the reasons, pardon me, for the gap that black women face with prenatal care? Um, it's racism and not race. There's a lot in the literature that touts that black women or women of color come into pregnancy with um, increased comorbidities for certain things, high blood pressure, diabetes, potentially overweight. But when all those are controlled for, black women still tend to fare less favorably in childbirth. And then similarly positioned white women or Hispanic women. So what is the difference? The difference is that they're black and there are a lot of myths in the medical profession that black women don't experience pain at the intensity that white women do. Um, they experience it less hmm. or more exaggerated. So what they're saying is if, if a black woman is complaining of pain and is acting like her pain scale or saying her pain scale is a 10 out of 10, it's really not that bad. Hmm. Or that, you know, I've seen in medical books that black people have tougher skin than white people do. And so there are a lot of things that I think people bring in their own unconscious biases. And these stigmas drive potentially the way that they treat and um, order certain diagnostic tests. And in turn, it could lead to and affect how people go to seek medical care. I mean, we know that people of color hold high levels of mistrust for our our healthcare system. And that's for real and historical structural reasons. Correct. What is contributing to that distrust for black people who can become pregnant in particular? The continued um, being dismissed, the continued um, systemic and institutional racism that a lot of people um, experience. And I have seen this firsthand in taking care of my own patients in a Vanderbilt practice when I first moved to Tennessee and I had a black mother. This was not her first baby. She had high blood pressure. She came in for her postpartum visit. Her blood pressure was still sky high and she looked um, very sick. And I was like, you need to go back to the hospital. And she was just like, Stephanie, I don't want to go back to the hospital. Mm. I feel like I'm bothering them. Wow. And 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 I don't and she just started crying and she was just like I just don't feel safe going back over there, and I was like No, you're going. We're going to do everything that we need to do to make sure and get your blood pressure stabilized. And I went 
after I sent her back to the hospital, I went to my car and I just cried. I was like, it's 2022. And she is afraid. Black women are afraid of going to the hospital because they are afraid of not being listened to and being dismissed and potentially being not treated well once they get there. How, how does that, you know, further affect these women? It, it affects them not getting care and not wanting when they need to go being staying at home too long, potentially not seeking the care because they don't trust their health care providers. And racial concordance is crucial mm-hmm. in mitigating black health disparities. So having a provider, a nurse midwife, a physician, a doula, lactation consultant that looks like you is has been linked to increase in healthcare in healthcare outcomes, and so um, that my patient was black and I was black, and I felt her pain, mm-hmm. and I was just like, "No, you're going back, whether you want to or not. They're going to do their due diligence by you." And did everything they? they did. Okay, they did. They, I called over there, and I was just like, "She's coming back. We need to do X, Y, and Z." Um, and X, Y, and Z was done. She got the care that she needed, and thus she has subsequently moved on. Baby is fine, and she's pregnant with another one. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's a success story. But there are so many um, women who don't have advocates and who feel as though they don't have a voice in the agency to speak up and to keep calling or keep going back and until they get what they need. Now, Tia, have you seen examples of this mistrust with the people you work with? Uh, Yeah, 100%. I think that when you're talking about the history and the legacy of colonialism in the United States, then you have to understand that there is mistrust in every factor and every segment of our government from education to the carceral state to medical, right? Like, There are documented cases of how medical racism affects our birth outcomes in very real um, and negative capacities. Um, There are a lot of people who, you know, we're we're tired. We're working all the time. We have other kids maybe we have to take care of. We're doing other things. And we know that stress has a negative impact on pregnancy. And so if you're thinking about all the just typical stressors in your life and then there's an added barrier of well, now I have to figure out how I'm going to navigate my doctor's appointment. Am I going to, I know people who say they dress up to go to the doctors, right? Like mm-hmm. black people who don't feel comfortable showing up and what's most comfortable while they're pregnant, leggings and sweatpants, right? Like, but now you have to do your hair and do your makeup and your partners have to get dressed up and put on a collared shirt just so that your doctors and your, and the people who are supposed to be in charge of your care take you seriously as a human being, right? Like it's mm-hmm. the level of respectability politics that we implement on ourselves, but it's because of the outcomes that we we see um, and how necessary they are. So it is important for us to understand that the additional stressors of racism do have a negative impact on our experiences and the trust is not coming out of nowhere. We're not pulling that or the mistrust, I should say, is not being pulled out of thin air. What are some of the biases doctors may bring with them when treating a black patient who is pregnant? Yeah, so there are a lot of different things and a lot of different biases that go into um, medical racism. So you have the stereotypes, right? Like doctors who are upset with black women who have multiple children, right? Or maybe they're there without their partner. You have things where, like right now, we're talking about black women specifically, but there are gender expansive, non-binary people who are also capable of getting pregnant. How does their care look? And is it 
is it um, empowering to their gender expression? Um, you have maybe they do have high blood pressure or they have something else and they think, oh, it's just the black American diet, right? Like maybe if they stop eating that slave food, then they could have better outcome. Like, mm. you know, it's all of these cultural outliers that things get attributed to. It's always put on the individual and it's their responsibility to be in charge of their care instead of systems that have been put in place, right? We are creating these realities and then blaming people for trying to survive them. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about black prenatal health. My next guest works closely with pregnant patients. Dr. Rolanda Lister is a maternal fetal medicine physician and she joins us now. Dr. Lister, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. So you care for people who are having complications during pregnancy. What complications do you encounter most here in Middle Tennessee? Well, amongst the complications that I treat um, involve diabetes, pre-existing type 1 or type 2 diabetes, gestational diabetes that can develop during pregnancy that may require a treatment with insulin or other medication, um, chronic hypertension or high blood pressure, um, uh, patients who have HIV, autoimmune conditions such as lupus, um, sickle cell disease, uh, asthma. So those are amongst uh, some of the complicated pregnancies that I see. Additionally, um, if the unborn uh, baby or the fetus has anomalies, then we're often involved in diagnosing those um, anomalies before birth so that we can coordinate care for the baby. Now, how does socioeconomic status contribute to pregnancy complications? Oh, it contributes significantly. Um, in the healthcare field, there's like a presumption that there is a social safety net um, that underlies each of our patients, meaning that we presume that they have a place to live or mm -hmm. food to eat or transportation to get to their appointments. Um, if those things are not in place, things that we call uh, certain social determinants of health, um, that can derail the medical treatment that we are able to offer patients. Now, Stephanie, how does the structure of our medical system, how does that affect the quality of care? The structure right now, as far as in the maternity world, so being a, a doctorally prepared nurse midwife, I'm a nurse scientist, I educate and I, um, and I teach. So the structure is with nurse mid midwifery, we are trained in the normal to detect the abnormal. So nurse midwives usually take more care of more lower risk with, in collaboration with, say, Dr. Rolanda Lister mm -hmm. um, as the maternal fetal medicine. So the structure is they can have a nurse midwife or they can have a physician for their prenatal care. And if anything goes awry that needs medical intervention, then that's where Dr. Lister comes in. So it's a very good, mm -hmm. if structured correctly, it's a very good working relationship where the nurse midwife knows their scope, and if anything skews outside of their scope, then we consult with the physician. A lot of physicians sometimes feel as though nurse midwives and physicians are competing mm. um, for revenue, for patients, and we're not competing. There's no reason for a low-risk in birthing person, individual, who has um, no 
pre-existing comorbidities or anything, or even if they do, no reason why they can't have a nurse midwife who is trained in the normal to detect the abnormal and have lower instrument delivery rates as far as vacuum C-sections, um, forceps and things like that. But if something, not all birth goes as predicted or as people want. So if that comes up, then that's where the physician can step in at. Okay. So in a in the right situation, it could be an awesome working relationship, but there's a hierarchy mm-hmm. and physicians don't sometimes admire or look at midwives kind of as equals. Okay. Like we're, yeah. we're kind of less than. Okay. Now you said something that stuck out to me. They said that there's no reason why a person, pregnant person, should not be able to receive good quality care. Yet here in the United States, we have a higher mortality rate compared to other wealthy nations. Why is that, Dr. Lister? I think there are so many different reasons. The thing that stands out to me, um, firstly, is probably uh, universal access um, to maternity care. So most other developed nations, I believe the U.S. Um, is an outlier in that we are the only developed nation that doesn't offer universal um, health care to its citizens. Um, So I think that that's one of the things. But alongside that, some of the public health measures, um, and this kind of goes back to what we call the social determinants of health, but I think we know um, from the historical record that a lot of these social determinants of health are really rooted in the systemic um, racism that kind of was the foundation in terms of like, uh, you know, uh, land ownership, um, redlining, um, systemic um, inequities that really um, kind of uh, is the overlay to why some patients uh, may not have uh, equal access to, to care. You know, earlier we were talking about the reasons why black women don't necessarily trust of the medical system. In your experience, are doctors talking about that lack of trust? I think the conversation has has started to to mm. uh, build in that manner. Um, as a black physician, I have a unique um, purview um, because I have the lived experience of being a black citizen in the United States and then also uh, being part of the medical establishment that has betrayed black women. Um, So a lot of times what I see um, in my practice, especially black patients, it's almost like an exhale, like they can feel uh, comfortable that they have a provider that uh, not only is knowledgeable about their um, pregnancy complications, but can also relate in a... um, on a deeper, um, you know, more genuine uh, level Mm -hmm. and someone who kind of has that similar comparable lived experience. Now, Tia, you shared some of what you went through. What would you like to see change when it comes to black maternal health care? Um, I think originally it'll start with education, right? Um, I think that there's a lot of ignorance when it comes to what pregnancy is, what the outcomes can be, and what support exists. I know it wasn't until I was an adult that I even learned about, like, 
doulas and midwifery as its own stand, like a profession in conjunction with, you know, doctors and physicians. Um, I'm originally from South Carolina, so I kind of knew about like your grandmama who you called over to help. But that was the extent of it. Yeah. You know, um, I think that so the education is a huge piece. And then also um, I think our country needs to shift its focus on what our priorities are. Um, It's one thing to say, like, hey, we care about maternal mortality or we care about, um, you know, making sure that there is equality in our medical field. But it's another thing to put your money behind that. Right. So things like universal health care would be important. Things like ensuring that black women can get lactation classes, things like uh, securing housing and economic security, because like one of the tenets of reproductive justice is the right to parent your children in safe and healthy environments. And your children includes the ones that you're hoping to bring into this world right and so it is very difficult for someone to have a you know positive pregnancy experience when they're still wondering if they're going to eat today Mm -hmm. Um, and so um, access to maternal and paternal leave right access to um, insurance that covers all the procedures you need and you don't have to skip out on an ultrasound right and your medications and your prenatal vitamins and being able to get that not just um, having to set up an appointment with your doctor to pick it up at the pharmacy but making things convenient because you know people work they don't have transportation. They like access to a lot of different things. And how are we evening that playing field? Um, I think those are one of the things. And then just communal support, you know, like Mm -hmm. who's going to help you if you have to take off work, look at your other kids while you go to the doctor. Um, How are we insulating families to support their right and their decision to have children? Tia Freeman is a sex educator who works with the Beyond Row Collective. Tia, thank you for coming on to the show and thank you for sharing your experience. Thank you. Stephanie Devan Johnson and Dr. Rolanda Lister will stay with us through the break. When we come back, we'll take a look at the solutions and alternatives that many black women have sought out for better prenatal care. Are you pregnant? What options are you considering? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women. This is due to racial biases and a substandard prenatal care, among other issues that are not exactly easy to solve. For obvious reasons, many black women aren't waiting on the medical system to change. They're seeking out different types of care and different kinds of caregivers. They are working with doulas and midwives to help guide them through the process of childbirth. Can these alternatives help to create solutions for black women? My next guest is doula Christian, Kristen Mejia, founder of Homeland Heart Collective. Kristen, thank you for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Really appreciate you being here. So we're going to start with a real basic question. Can you tell us what a doula does? Oh, yes. Yeah, super basic. Okay. I can tell you that what a doula... So there are several different types of doulas, but okay. we'll, we'll go with the most general form, which is going to be a birth doula. Um, so what doulas do are provide emotional support, non-biased, educational, evidence-based support to clients um, during their pregnancy, labor, 
and delivery and their postpartum period. So usually up to about the first six weeks of um, of them having a baby. And all of that, the emotional support includes um, really just kind of navigating pregnancy, navigating the healthcare system for for women of any color, because this is it can be a little difficult. Um, and so, yeah, we're there to kind of we're like I love to call us glorified hand holders, glorified hand holders. <laughs> I like that a lot. Now, you know, how does a doula help an expecting family, you know, during the stages of pregnancy, prenatal, during labor and post the, the postpartum period? So unfortunately, in the society that we live in, um, birthing people don't get much of a chance to know or understand pregnancy until it's happening to them. Mm. Um, and again, uh, unfortunately, a nine month crash course in how to build a body and get it out of your body is not that doesn't work. So adding supplemental support like a doula and the knowledge and experience that doulas come with um, give clients an opportunity to kind of uh, feel more comfortable asking more questions. Most of the time doulas are community based Mm-hmm. and um, representatives of the community that they serve. So it creates that familial connection. It creates a different level of comfort. And so oftentimes I work with women who will leave the doctor's office and call me and say, hey, this is what happened. This is what they were talking about. I don't understand. And I, my first question is always, well, why didn't you say so? <laughs> why didn't you ask? Mm-hmm. But it is the fear of then not understanding that. So what we come in or what we get the opportunity to do is walk alongside these families to help clarify some things and really to help them um, advocate for themselves and empower their journey by becoming a part of their birth, mm. right? A lot of times the appointment is something that is happening to them, not with them. There is not this shared decision-making process. There is not um, the overhaul of options for the mom because most birthing people are birthing in a system. What they are being given is what they are allowed. Mm. It's not a, here, these are, this is the whole list of things we offer. Which one would you like to do? It's, this is what we do here. This is how we do this. This is what we're going to do with you. And it's a lot of the agreeable head nodding. Mm-hmm. And so as the patient, you're you're just kind of like, oh, oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. Particularly if it's the first time you've had a child. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. If it's the first time you've had a child, if you've never been to if you've never been exposed to pregnancy, right? So like, let's say if you're an only child yourself and you don't have any siblings that have ever had children or you've never seen your parents have children, just any of that stuff, you're in an entire world where you also live in a society that says, here are the people that we trust with this experience. Listen to what they say. Mm. Now, you know, there's a movement of black women who are using these alternative methods of care. How are you informing the black women about the options they have when it comes to care while they're pregnant? Um, so the the women that the birthing people that I have the opportunity to work with, um, I, and I will toot my own horn here, uh, they get a little lucky to be able to work with myself and uh, my organization. I'm a senior student 
midwife as well. And so my doula skill level is a little enhanced Mm. and there's a lot more information that I come with as a doula and that my doulas come with, um, with regard to nutrition, diet, exercise, um, different ways that we can navigate some of the things that doctors are telling them to do that they don't want to do. For example, um, we have a young lady on our client load who um, is experiencing some high blood pressure and she had gone to the doctor where our our doula went to the doctor's appointment with her where she spoke with her doctor about her high blood pressure and the immediate response was to start her on medication. Um, And then there was a conversation that was had in part because my doula or because our doula spoke up and said, Mm. isn't there something else we could do here? Besides the first thing being medication, um, this is an early, very early prenatal visit. So we kind of have some time to work with it, some time to play around with the nutrition and diet, look at a diet log like there. We are starting to understand, especially as a as the community of black people, that there are other ways to be healthy in general. Mm-hmm. Right. And so yeah. all of that comes back down to the way that we give birth and we're realizing, wait, there has to be a different way than what we've been doing before. There are plenty of other ways. Uh, Vanderbilt (laughs) Nursing School professor, Dr. Stephanie Devane Johnson and maternal fetal medicine physician, Dr. Rolanda Lister are still with us. Now, Stephanie, you are a midwife. Some people get the work of a doula and a midwife confused. Can you explain to us what a midwife does? I would love to. So a certified nurse midwife. So there are different arms to midwifery. There's a certified nurse midwife, which I am. So I went to nursing school first, then went back and obtained advanced training to do well woman GYN and um, deliver babies, take care of women from menarche to postpartum to menopause. And then there are midwives who are trained the professional way, which is Kristen. And so she is getting her midwifery training with another nurse midwife out in the community. Mm-hmm. So um, I, being a nurse, I kind of bridge the gap as far as I have the medical knowledge and being the nurse midwife. And so a doula is not technically medically trained. They're trained in comfort measures. Let's change positions. They have training in, you know, we we give training in nutrition and help with breastfeeding and um, ways to decrease stress, things of that nature. But their, the doula's job is for help advocate and help guide. And sometimes we as healthcare professionals talk above where patients can understand. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the doula translates. Mm -hmm. So they're like, okay, (laughs) they said X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. So this means in layman's terms. And so that in the birth world, the doula is like if somebody came from another country and they spoke Spanish and we didn't speak Spanish, they got on the interpreter line. The doula can sometimes serve as the interpreter line for us and break everything down. Okay, now you have options. You are agency in your own care. What do you want to do once they understand the full gamut? So I'm 
monitoring the lab work, making sure mama's okay, baby's okay, driving that train. And then the doula works in collaboration with the family and helping them navigate the healthcare system. All right. So we have the saying, it takes a community to raise a child. But yes. what you always saying is it takes a community to give birth yes. to yes. a child. Yes. So Dr. Lister, you're a physician. Mm -hmm. How has the medical community, how have they reacted to the involvement of doulas and midwives in the childbirth process? Well, I'll start with myself. Okay. <laughs> I love doulas and I love midwives. And um, when I was first given this invitation, I actually did not know that Stephanie and Kristen were the other um, participants. Mm -hmm. um, but I was told that there would be a doula and there would be a midwife. And I just had this sneaking suspicion that it might be <laughs> my two favorite people. And the reason <laughs> why um, what I envision is delivering prenatal care, even high-risk prenatal care, in collaboration with our community doulas and our mid mid midwives. And we have actually kind of operationalized that, or we are attempting to operationalize that in our practices. Um, we've done um, bi-directional uh, education so that um, as a physician, I can understand what some of the um, uh, anxieties that some of the uh, my my patients might have mm -hmm. that they may feel a little bit uneasy to talk about their you know to their doctors with. I can kind of um, understand that. I can. Uh, Kristen has taught me a lot about some of the uh, community resources that are present, like you know, to support moms. So, like we were talking about earlier, the social determinants of health. You know. Um, I had a patient who was homeless in the hospital and was hard to discharge her because she didn't have anywhere to go. So I called, you know, I called, you know, the um, housing department. It was kind of hard to make inroads that way. I called Kristen and she was like, oh, yeah, we have a fund that uh, pays for um, Airbnbs, you know, for patients who have, you know, short term housing insecurity. Mm -hmm. If you go to Kristen, we've done trainings at Kristen's, um, you know, Set up. I don't even know what to call it at your at your place at the at, at Homeland Heart. So I, I think that there is in the future there's a lot of opportunity to have collaborations. I refer to Homeland Heart very frequently, even for my high risk patients, particularly if they're black, because I know that they're going to get that um, emotional support that they need. You know. Okay. So well, how can we improve the outcomes for Black women and their infants? You know, I'd love for all of you to answer that question, Doctor Lister. Let's start with you. I think um, in terms of the collaborative nature of what we are wanting to create together, I think if all patients had uh, navigators in the form of doulas that can kind of handhold um, them through pregnancy, I think that's one of the things that'll help improve access, address whatever um, barriers to care that they may have, and also to provide you know more uh, in-depth culturally sensitive education. I think that's one of the main things that we can do to help um, better outcomes for moms and babies. Kristen? So many things. There's so many things. Um, I am going to take the approach of improvement from a societal lens. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times when we look when we look at the mother baby dyad, 
that's all we're paying attention to. And we're not paying attention to how many people touch these people. How many people could know a little something different or be in touch with a different resource to be able to help. It's, it is, again, the village idea that it is every, everyone is everyone's job. So if we're going to improve infant and maternal health across the board, we all need to be knowledgeable of what is going on. And very often we make this the problem of the people who are experiencing it (laughs) and not realizing, again, it's the social determinants of health. It's the way the grocery store clerk interacts with a pregnant woman. It's the way the daycare worker of her first kid interacts with her, helps her pick her baby up to put her on, to put the baby on the chest rather than not. It is understanding that us saying it takes a village mm-hmm. to raise a child is more than just a beautiful proverb. Mm-hmm. We've got a minute left. Stephanie. I'm going to piggyback off of what Dr. Lister and Kristen had said. I'm in the frame of thinking, again, concordant care, racially concordant care. So creating pipelines, creating, because sometimes getting advanced education to become a nurse or a physician or a midwife or a doula, there are financial barriers Mm -hmm. so that a lot of people, if they are struggling to meet ends meet, but they have the passion and want to be in the birth world, potentially taking away some of those barriers and helping these individuals get the education they need to get out in the community to serve their community. And also, um, speaking of what Kristen said, for the bigger entities that, you know, DEI is the buzzword right now. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of training. There's a lot of bias training, unconscious, conscious, things of that nature. But when a black person points out that's a racial situation. But the entities go, no, it's not. That's the issue that comes up, turning a blind eye to things. Dr. Stephanie Devan Johnson is a midwife and associate professor at Vanderbilt University School of Nursing. She was joined by Kristen Mejia, doula and founder of Homeland Heart Creative and Dr. Rolanda Lister, maternal fetal medicine physician. I want to thank you all for being on the show. Thank you for what you are doing and thank you for bringing light to such a very difficult topic. Really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, it's been two years since the National Museum of African American Music opened its doors. We'll check out what they have in store for this year. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Farouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme musical, Orange and Amir Blade, and the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.